Welcome back to the Spirituality and Business Leadership Podcast. I'm Jennifer Woolley, one of your hosts, and today I'm talking with Nilofer Merchant. Nilofer is a world-renowned innovator, entrepreneur, speaker, writer, three books and counting with numerous HBR articles, um, and consultant who has launched over 100 products with over $18 billion in sales. She started her career at Apple, helping to launch one of the first internet servers. And she went on to work at Autodesk, Adobe, and Symantec, amongst other places, and now works with companies around the world to help identify and shape their next value creation strategies. She is ranked one of the world's top management thinkers by Thinkers 50. And I am so excited to welcome Nilofer to our podcast. Where did you start? Um, you have this incredible trajectory over your your career, and I, let's let's go back to to how you got into this. Sure. So I ended up at Santa Clara, uh, not because I especially chose the school and said, oh my God, this is the very best school. I chose the school because I was working my way through colleges. I did my undergrad all that way. So I ended up going to USF, also a Jesuit institution, interestingly enough, mm -hmm. um, and got my undergrad in applied econ. And then, um, you know, was looking around at MBA programs and the only one that would allow me to do work, actually like have a whole job was Santa Clara University. So I really? started, yeah. And, uh, and so I started really with this, like, okay, it's just, it's, I need to do the stuff of learning and I'll do it here. And, uh, and it's, but I look back and I think how much the Jesuit context has really shaped my understanding of my work. And mm. I don't think I'd be doing any of the work I'm doing today if it weren't for that Jesuit context, which talk about serendipity or whatever that is that helps you get formed. Yeah. So, so talk about that. What is it about the Jesuit context? What is it about uh, the Jesuit educational system that has influenced you? Hmm. The way I understand Jesuits, it's all about action. So it's not about theory. It's not about dogma. It is literally about the way we are in the world. And I think about that in terms of onlyness, which is this work, and I'll, I'm sure I'm going to circle back and tell you what onlyness is, but this work I've been doing for quite a bit of time, which is how do we actually solve real problems inside businesses? It's not some theory. It's about what we do in action. Mm -hmm. And I think organizations are stuffed with people who solve problems once they've been labeled. I think I'm a person who's willing to sit there and look at which problem should we be solving and what's the sort of moral compass in that mm. uh, is really there. And yeah. then I'm all about, it doesn't matter what I say. It only matters what I do. doesn't matter what the theory is. only matters what we do. And so I'm always about, let's get to the real way in which we start living our values. Uh, and so I think that's how the Jesuit instruction system has really informed me. It's moving from an abstract set of theories to the set of actions that creates goodness and value creation in the world. Really applying the education, applying the learning and using it in the best way you can. Absolutely. And Santa Clara was one of those places where I was working at the time I was running. When I left grad school, I was also running the Americas for a company called Autodesk, 
running, meaning I was responsible for all the revenue and operations. So I had, I had people might've been assigned the quota, but mm -hmm. I was responsible for the macro quota for the whole division and making sure any part of the business that wasn't working could work. So it was channel, it was ops, it was programs. It was, you know, it was just, it was in fact the comp plan, just a whole series of programmatic things. And there I was in grad school learning, let's say finance or learning, you know, some accounting discipline or learning operations. And then I would go back and I would talk to my senior finance person and say, so I just learned this last night. Tell me how you apply it at this point. Nice. And so it was very much about thinking about what does this mean in application? Yeah. That was really one of the beauties of the program. But I think the moral, moral thing about what is the right problem to be solved is probably the bigger piece. When you, because you, you were at Apple before that, then you were running the Americas at Autodesk, which is a gigantic job and getting your MBA at the same time. How did you balance that? Oh, I was, I was one of those students that would show up, uh, you know, sort of like literally show up from the airport with like a roller bag and sort of scooch into the seat. And sometimes I also, I made one teacher, for example, very upset because I read the syllabus and the syllabus said, if you do certain things like, you know, pass certain tests, that's what the grade would be based on. So I also viewed it as well that I don't need to be in class. So I only need to show up enough for me to be able to pass that test. And he was super upset because I wasn't showing up and he really wanted everybody to show up. And I, I was like, but I just pointed it back to the syllabus. It's like, well, I'm managing my life based on how I need to optimize different things. I'm reading this and saying, I don't need to be here. And he said something like it was just so upsetting, but I did this sort of like definitely skirted the line of how I was going through classes, but I was just literally like, okay, well, I'll take Monday classes that only meet Monday, Wednesday, so I can get on a plane Wednesday night and have two days on yeah. the road or whatever it was. I was definitely like doing way too much, you know, of that, figuring out how to skim between things to figure out how to knit it all together. Wow. Doesn't it's make impressive. Student, but it made me a good learner. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and I, I was looking at this article that you wrote um, about your experiences in your MBA, you're taking a class or spirituality and organizational leadership with Andre Delbeck. And I remember reading that you said that at, at a certain point, you realized that your work wasn't working. And I think they were talking about Autodesk at the time. Um, can you dive into that a little bit? Sure. Um, so, you know, the course of Andre's was really about developing an interior life. So, and by that, I mean, he was asking us questions about what is right and wrong for you. Because uh, I think we understand in theory, what is right and wrong. I think most of us understand, you know, don't lie or whatever it is. But then we get into particular situations and we're like faced with tensions about, okay, so uh, when I tell 100% truth, it'll hurt people too. So, okay, now I have conflicting goals how do I reconcile those conflicting goals so that I can develop a moral compass? So that interior life of, okay, when I'm faced with a situation, what is it that I'm going to use to navigate? What do I mm -hmm. prioritize? And I had never really done that work before. Most of us haven't. And I was in that world thinking about, you know, I want to be like a good friend and I want to create business outcomes. And then I was facing situations at work where I was so focused on the business outcome that I was often willing to step on and through people 
to get to that business outcome because that had been my North Star. Mm -hmm. And then when I got into this work with Andre, I was sitting there going, gosh, I'm a person who's willing to step on or through people. Is that really, if I sit there and think about it, is that really who I want to be? Is that the type of leader I want to be? Is that the type of person I want to be? Is that the type of friend I want to be? And it recalibrated the question, not because I had an answer. I didn't have an answer then. But I started asking a whole new set of questions, which is, how do you do this work of outcomes work, which businesses require and great business leaders have to do, and, not or, but and, also do it in such a way that you leave people whole in the process. Mm -hmm. And I had never reconciled that. I'd always viewed it as a binary of like, if I have to pick between results or people, I'm going to tick results. Mm -hmm. If I have to choose people over process, I'll choose people. If I have to, you know, so whatever the thing was, like there was a binary set of thinking in my head that wasn't informed by any kind of deeper consideration of what does this mean for me at the end of a day. And so there was one day when I'd had a fight with someone actually who'd been a dear, dear friend, but I really didn't think she was hearing the business issue right. And I publicly well, I publicly shamed her. I publicly made her look stupid in front of a bunch of people to prove my argument. And I went home that night. I looked in the mirror and I thought, this is not, I don't like who I'm seeing. Mm -hmm. And it was just the, it was such a hard moment, not because I was, uh, you know, again, like there's lots of reasons why in that moment, you could dismiss it, but I was willing to sit with that and go, what is it that's forming me right now that's making me make this decision? And then knowing how I feel right now, what are a different set of choices? And that's actually what drove probably the next 20 years of my career, that one question, um, and at least the next 10, because I wrote a book at the end of a 10-year period from there, so I can actually kind of mark it. You know how there's certain markers in your career, and you're like, oh, this is where I can say I actually learned something. I'm working on collaborative work uh, and doing strategy work through collaboration and really figuring out how do you get the people involved and the organization involved um, and the the leaders involved to all be working on a problem in a shared way so that we aren't dealing with the process or people or Mm -hmm. people and results. But you sit there and you go, how do you run a process that allows people and results, all that to come together on one side of the desk, kind of facing a problem together? And I realized basically 10 years of me had been figuring that question out of like, how do you do that multiplicity of views? How do you do process to make people safe? How do you enable everyone to add value? And at the end of the 10 years, I was like, people kept saying, what do you do when you're in the room that once you're out of the room, we can't duplicate? And that's what led to book number one. That makes sense. Because you're in a context that had almost been or or was promoting the original thinking that you had, the binary thinking, the performance-driven thinking. And you were shifting that paradigm. And and a, a book came out of it, which is fantastic, because shifting that paradigm is a really hard conversation to have. Yeah. And it's 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 just so it's so interesting. And the book is called The New How. <laughs> and it's really me saying, here's the new how, right? For me. It's much more, I think that's what's so interesting. If people really understood this about books, almost every person who's writing a book has a problem on the exact subject they're writing on. That's why they're enamored with the book. 
Uh, so a person who writes about vulnerability really struggles to be vulnerable. A person who writes about grit really struggles to have strength. A per- almost guaranteed. Like I've met hundreds of authors and it's undoubtedly. Oh, and the person who writes about why actually really struggles with personal values. Swear to God. It's the most, it's the biggest clue uh, that that we have as writers is we're actually sitting there. The reason we're obsessed with the topic is because it's our struggle. Oh, that's interesting. That is interesting. But the thing that, that I don't know, uh, kind of sticks out to me is not only was it a personal struggle, but you hit the nail on the head because that a whole bunch of other people were having the same struggle, but they didn't have necessarily the time or energy or ability to come up with the answers. And that's not an easy thing to do. So I think until you have a new question in your mind, right? This is Clay Christensen's beautiful phrasing. He said, until there's a new question in your mind, there's no place for the answer to come. And, uh, and Clay got a chance to, you know, I've spent some time with him and, and he was so generous when I first won Mm. an award. And he said, I'd really like to learn more about your thinking because I've been now reading your thinking. And, you know, we had just a lovely conversation, but I had already been using that quote of his because it tells you that the the great job of teaching isn't about giving answers. It is literally about the formulation of a great question. And the more we can sit there and hold important strategic questions in our mind, the more we go looking for the answer, right? And we, and we actually don't know how to solve for it if we don't know the better question. Right. And so I think that's really the magic of the coursework at Santa Clara is when the teachers are doing, doing a great job, they're actually teaching you how to ask yourself a much smarter question. And that's what Andre's course did for me. And that, that toggle of, Hmm. Okay. So I see that I chose results over people. I see that everything in my environment reinforces that. In fact, by the way, all the comp models, Mm -hmm. throwing people under the bus was a very Carol Bartz thing, who was the CEO at the time. Uh, It was very cutthroat kind of culture. And I was quote unquote succeeding in that culture. But I had this other question, which was, Hmm, this doesn't feel right. Mm -hmm. And something about my instinct says there's another way. And then you go looking for, okay, well, if there is another way, what would that even other way be? Um, I also find it interesting that you, you work or you talk about collaborative work in your first book. And I think that piggybacks on another concept that you've written about in terms of meritocracy not really being the standard, you know, it's, it's more about, I don't want to say power being social, but getting the work done being social. Mm. And you're talking about that in your collaboration and your collaboration work. And then you, you dive in deeper when you talk about the idea of onlyness. Mm. It's, um, you know, you take, the collaboration work, and you really focus that in on what it means to be important in and of yourself. And I, that was one of the things that kind of came out for me, for, for me, for the loneliness. I mean, there's a lot there. <laughs> there's so much good stuff there. Um, but I, I, you know, I, I think we need to share with the world uh, more about your concept of onlyness. Um, so for people who haven't read the book or watched yeah. the 
watch the uh, videos. Um, how do you describe it in a nutshell? So onlyness, it's centering on that source of value creation. And by that, I mean, each of us simply by standing in that spot in the world, only one stands a function of one's history and experience, as well as visions and hopes. So not just our past, but also what we see as possible. We're able to add our distinct point of view. And onlyness centers then on that person. And it's different. I coined it because yeah. um, it's different than being the only one or the first one in a room. Because when you're the only one or the first one in a room, let's say the only engineer in a room full of marketing people, the only young person in a room full of, you know, you know, like more senior people, uh, and certainly gender and race and all those issues show up as the onlys. But when you're the only one, what's happening is the room is being centered. And you're getting told that somehow you are quote unquote different right? when the truth is actually each of us is so distinctly ourselves. And so I wanted to recalibrate and reframe, let's talk about, you know, my gift here is to reframe and structure the issue in such a way that we can actually solve for the issue. So my background uh, being collaboration and innovation work, I had been working on strategy firms at like Adobe and Nokia and all these beautiful big tech companies. And every single time the problem would turn out to be this. So they'd, they'd been struggling with an issue like shipping a product or solving some major market problem for years. They had sometimes hired a McKinsey or Bain or someone else, Deloitte, not solved it with them, then waited another year or two while they struggled internally. And then by the time they got to us, uh, it, it had been a while. And I would say, okay, so here's the deal. We're going to actually ask anyone in the firm to come help us solve the problem. Anyone and anyone can come play was the phrase I would use. And executives would look at me like I was the most insane person <laughs> because they just read, they heard me and they thought, what you're doing is creating chaos. And I was like, trust me, I've done this enough now, right? It took me a few years to develop a methodology. But when I got there, it's like, just trust me, I actually got this. I got this. Like, trust me, we're going to do this thing. But we'd bring anyone who was interested, we'd run the process so that you know, it was creating like clarity of like, here's why we're in the room. So it's not for every venting session in the world. It's just mm -hmm. this objective. And then we would engage everyone and we'd make sure everyone had a chance to participate. And undoubtedly, I mean, like, I'm not kidding when I say 99 to hundred percent of like, undoubtedly it was some person had already raised the issue before had been shouted down or unheard mm -hmm. and basically been told, actually your opinion doesn't count. Not because by the mm -hmm. way, we heard you out, but because the body or the job skill of that person that was talking was deemed unworthy of being heard. And I was like, actually, and so by the time I heard them out, everyone in the room would have this little epiphany. You could feel it. You could always feel it. There was this moment that would happen. Sometimes it was three weeks, four weeks, six weeks. So like there was this epiphany where you're like, holy shit, we haven't understood the problem the way we needed to understand the problem. And it was this like no name person, air quotes needed, who was giving the insight. Yeah. And what I saw was that actually what had happened is the onlyness of some people was counting and the onlyness of all of us was not. But if we mm -hmm. actually build a way to center on the source of value creation, which is, by the way, inherent in each of us, then we can actually draw on all those capacities. And so the reason we don't do innovation well in every existing organization is because we're used to hearing a certain set of voices, sometimes the loudest voices, sometimes the most male voices, sometimes the most confident voices. Right. All the different ways in which we sort through bias, which is well-known, mm -hmm. documented work. And that's why meritocracy is a myth. We often say the person with the best idea will be heard. It's such a myth, though, because actually that doesn't account for bias. It doesn't account for power dynamics. It doesn't account for status. So that's like saying 
in an ideal world, <laughs> right? yeah, right. It's a future mythology um, that would happen. And so that's why the term meritocracy is so unhelpful. And we need to actually account for the fact that each of us is not always seen and heard. And instead, actually just fix the systems and structures that let people get seen and heard. And so that's what the Onlyness Framework is really about. It's putting the onus in the right place, which is to say each of us has value to add. If they're not adding value, it's not the person's fault. It's not jump higher and be more confident and show more grit or lean in. It's not any of that. It is literally, what are the processes and systems that the organization's doing that is either letting people get heard and getting a chance to contribute value or not? Fix those. So it could be comp. It could be the way you're running a meeting, right? Mm -hmm. Like the simple meeting management of put post-its on the board to get every idea for a surface so that you're not allowing the loudest voice in the room to be the only idea that's heard. Or it could be um, that you actually make sure like as you go around and people are allowed to build their job structure, you say, what is the thing that makes you super passionate? Can you do that? Mm. And can we figure out how to actually tailor work so it suits the capacity of the people that are on the team? Mm -hmm. So those are just ways in which I'm doing this reframing and onlyness. Um, so what I, you know, it's sort of a tectonic thing I'm doing here because what I'm saying is value creation has traditionally been about the firm, right? The way you actually did that was you had to have the wealth and the structure of an operational PNG, a Coca-Cola, whatever. And today disparate people can be connected together and create value using social networks, which means the source of value creation has shifted. Right from organization-centered to idea-centered. That's why sometimes people call it an ideas economy. Uh, You know, there's a whole bunch of creative economy. Like there's a bunch of different naming uh, nomenclature. doesn't matter which one. They're all pointing to the same thing, which is the source of value has shifted and needs to center correctly. And that's what I'm trying to do is give people that language to say, people are not resources to be used, but of ideas. 